0: WDBM East Lansing.
1: Welcome to the Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series that explores student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Maddie Dowling
0: and Dimitri Joseph. Today we have Megan McGrath with us to discuss her research. If you don't mind, Megan, could you just introduce yourself and tell us what year are you, which department that you're with?
2: Yeah. So hi, I'm Megan. I am a third year DO Ph.D. student and I am in the Cox Lab in the Molecular Cellular Integrative Physiology Department.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about what your specific research interests are and what projects that you're involved in?
2: Yeah. So my specific research interests are really what I call the excitatory and inhibitory balance within the brain and how our brains process information and, in particular, how that information leads to what we perceive as consciousness. I think a lot of people sort of understand that neurons fire, and that's how we interact with the world, is that this information comes in and then we've got these little cells called neurons and they fire off electrical activity, and that's what causes consciousness. But the sort of general way we're taught about neurons is that they're sort of an on-off state. Action potentials, I think a lot of people know that it's, it's an all or nothing. Uh, You reach a threshold and then it fires off and it's the same every time. And so how do these sort of binary states come together to create this complex consciousness and, you know, how do they change things? And so what I'm really interested in is sort of these fine-tuning And so this is what's known as the excitatory-inhibitory balance. So there's constantly within our brains these inputs coming onto these cells that are pushing them closer to firing off an action potential and pulling them further away from firing off an action potential. And there's a delicate balance when you look at the entire network of this that is necessary to create consciousness and to create sort of a functioning brain. Whereas on the one hand, if you have too much excitation, you have seizures. And that's just too much firing and you can't make sense of the noise. And on the other hand, too much inhibition and you get anesthesia or sleep, which are two different states themselves, but they look fairly similar. So my interest really lies in looking at that balance and what sort of mechanisms we have within the brain to make that balance possible from both a receptor level and then also a network level. So going out to seeing how these networks come together to make this what we know as consciousness.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really cool project. And it sounds like you're, you're trying to understand just how to keep the balance in check to prevent any adverse neuronal signaling.
1: That's super cool looking at how cellular level mechanisms result in actual human consciousness and human Behavior. So that's super interesting research. For people who don't have the same neuroscience background, I was wondering if you'd maybe be able to explain a little bit about what exactly neurons are in comparison to other types of cells and what do you mean by excitatory versus inhibitory?
2: Right, yeah. Neurons are a special type of cell. We like to call them excitable cells because they can reach what we consider excited states. They're these doorways, and when they open up, they either let in a negative charge, so like an electron or they let out a negative charge, or they let in positive charge, or they let out positive charge, depending on a whole bunch of other things and how the sort of environment around the cell is going. And essentially, all cells have the ability to have this sort of negative-positive interaction, but neurons are special in that when you get enough positive ions into them and they reach this threshold, they fire off what's known as an action potential. And so an action potential is this really rapid We call it depolarization, and so basically it's getting super positive, way more positive than any of the other cells around it, and then that positivity propagates, so it goes down along this really long axon, which I like to think of it as like a big, long hallway, and so there's this long hallway, and the positive ions are moving down it, and then they allow either the release of other transmitters or something like that, or they make other channels open. They open a bunch of doorways that then go to the next neuron, the next cell. And that cell then gets this barrage of information, either in neurotransmitters, opening doorways of these ion channels or something like that, and then theoretically that cell will either reach the threshold and then also depolarize to the point where it can fire off an action potential and send that information further along. or. Maybe it won't. And there's a lot of interactions. So these happen at what are known as synapses, which are these little one corridor coming onto another corridor of doors opening and closing, ions moving through. And so that's how we get all of our information. So, you know, when I touch the table here, what's happening is that there are these little doors that are getting opened by the pressure of me pushing on that table and those doors open and that allows the ions to move in. And then that allows that neuron to send to the next neuron, which is in my spine. And that goes further up to my brain. And then it goes through the thalamus, which is where I'm really interested. And then the thalamus basically tells my cortex. So the cortex is the outside of your brain. And that's where all of consciousness happens or how we traditionally think of consciousness happening. And what information goes there is what we actually perceive. But there's so much more information coming in that gets kind of gate kept. if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: You kind of give us an outline of how these small sensory experiences get translated into consciousness and thoughts in the higher brain. And so you said it goes through the thalamus, which is the area that you're really interested in. Do you have anything you could share with us right now as to you know how that gets processed and how that information gets gatekept?
2: So the thalamus has a lot of different names that it goes by when people are trying to explain how it works. And one that I've gotten that I really like is the executive assistant, and it basically says how much information can go up. Another one that we really like in our lab is it's essentially a gain function. So for any musicians out there who know the little gain knob on your amplifier and it tells, again, how much signal actually goes out, that's essentially what the thalamus is doing. And the way that it does that is that there are these really intricate connections of a lot of different neurons, both neurons coming from the sensory information, so like from your finger touching the table, as well as information coming back down from your conscious processing. And then there's an inter-network of neurons within the thalamus. And so you get this one signal that comes in and it stimulates a bunch of different neurons that then all talk to each other and say how much of that signal should be going up to the brain. And you've also got within your conscious brain, this is where like attention comes in. And so you've got consciousness saying, "Mm, yeah, I should probably pay attention to that. And so it's going to go back down into the thalamus and essentially say, send me more of that because I want to pay more attention to it. You've also got these networks within the thalamus that are basically saying, you know what, there's too much of this signal. And it's going to overwhelm us, so let's back off and only send a little bit up. And it's really complicated, but this is really sort of the meat of what I'm interested in, is that there are a combination of excitation, basically go, go, send signals up, and inhibition, basically saying stop, don't send as much signal up. And that's the balance that I'm really interested in.
0: Yeah, this balance seems to be the focus of your research. And as you mentioned, it seems very complex and intricate. So could you give us an idea of how you go about investigating or measuring this signal?
2: So my primary technique that I use in my lab is something called electrophysiology. And I use what's known as slice patch clamp electrophysiology. And so I have animal brains uh, in our lab. We're right now mostly using mice. And you take the brain out and you make a really thin slice. And within that slice, you have a little bit of the thalamus. And so you can put that under the microscope and we can actually see individual neurons. And then what we do is we take a glass pipette, and it's filled with saline solution that's meant to mimic the inside solution of the cell. And we use a microscope, and we come in, and we stick that pipette against the body of the cell, and then we put a little pressure on it. So basically, we do a little sucking back pressure, and we rupture the membrane right around that pipette, and we let that membrane reseal around the pipette so that what we're doing is we've got this glass piece of equipment that's essentially inside the cell and we're able to electrically control it from a computer. So we've got some really nice fancy equipment and we can control how the cell then uh, functions. And so we can make the cell more excited, so depolarize it, put more positive energy into it. We can make it more inhibited and then we can also just sit and rest and we can look at other things going on so we can do stimulation where basically we stick a little rod on and we'll stimulate. One of the areas that we're really interested in is the DLGN which is what we know as the visual thalamus and there's this really nice track coming in from the eyes so we know that there's input onto there and so we stimulate those cells and then we're measuring another cell and we're seeing what that stimulation does to the cell that we're measuring and we see how all of this comes together to integrate information.
1: Are you looking at specific types of stimuli or
2: just any kind and how all the stimuli gets balanced? Right now, what we're really interested in is integration. The reason that we're looking at the visual thalamus is there's really special synapse, and we call it an F2 terminal, which is just a fancy word, or this synapse that has two dendrites. And so dendrites are generally the hallways that get the signal put onto them. The axon is the hallway that's sending the signal. The dendrites are the... Hallways that are receiving the signal is how we like to think about it. But in these synapses, there's two dendrites, one from what's known as a relay cell. And that's the one that actually talks up to the cortex and to the higher order brain and something known as an inner neuron. And an inner neuron is something that's just going to stay within the thalamus. So it's from one thalamus cell to another thalamus cell. And it's really important. That's a lot of where the sort of tuning comes from. And then the axon that we have in this triad of this synapse is coming from the what we know as the primary afferent, and so in the case of the visual thalamus, it's coming from the eye and bringing in visual information. And the reason we do this is because in rodents, these terminals only exist in the visual thalamus, but in higher order animals, particularly humans, these types of triads are found all throughout the thalamus, and we think they're really important for a lot of the sort of delicate sensory information that we get. And... So there's this really interesting interaction where the dendrites of the interneurons can act as if they're axons, and they can put information onto the dendrites of the relay neuron and control, again, how much of the signal. So you've got the afferent from the eye coming in and releasing all of these things and releasing all this information, which is getting both onto the relay neuron, which is then going to send information up to the cortex, as well as the inner neuron, so that you've basically got an excitation signal coming in saying, I'm getting sensory information, right? I'm getting, I'm seeing things. And then you have the inner neuron's gonna say, stop, stop, don't send as much information up. And there's this really interesting thing because this can happen without the interaction from the body of the cell. And this is sort of a a weird thing that before I got to this lab, I didn't really know it was a thing that could happen. I didn't know you could have these sort of independent thought. It's almost like a reflex, right? You're releasing information, and you're putting information on without going to the quote-unquote brain of the cell. So <laughs> that's sort of what we're really interested in, in our lab. My personal interest is really anesthesia, and essentially one of the major components of anesthesia is also pain. The goal of a good anesthetic is to make sure that you're not feeling any pain during surgery. And the way that we sort of approach that right now is just to completely shut everything down.
0: How do you plan on connecting your research in anesthesia? How will that advance the field of anesthesiology?
2: One of the things that I'm interested in is allowing us to get a deeper understanding of how anesthesia actually works. I remember even just last year seeing headlines within PopSci articles saying, you know, we've just made a major breakthrough. We finally understand how anesthesia works in the brain, stuff like that, and They're a little misleading in that we do understand how anesthetics work. We just don't understand how consciousness works. We still don't really have a great understanding of what makes a person conscious. And then we use anesthesia as a way to sort of probe consciousness by taking it away. And so we actually have a pretty good understanding of how anesthetics function within the brain and sort of their specific receptor mechanisms. But how that comes together to actually produce consciousness, to produce unconsciousness, things like that, we don't have a great understanding. And so my goal is to help us have a a deeper understanding of what makes consciousness, what makes conscious perception, particularly of pain, and how can we utilize that knowledge to make better anesthetics. Because right now, the way we do anesthesia, there's sort of two main types of anesthetics that we use. There's what's known as GABAergic, which are things like propofol, etomidate, your sedatives like diazepam. And those are going to come in and they're going to increase your signaling of a molecule known as GABA. And GABA is what we consider an inhibitory molecule. And basically, that's just going to increase the inhibition in the brain. Or There's what's known as glutamatergic, is sort of the other main approach to anesthesia. And the big one in there is ketamine. And that one comes in and it's a little bit different. And basically, rather than increasing inhibition, it decreases excitation. And it blocks what are known as NMDA receptors, which are a major excitatory receptor. And so you're taking out that signaling. And they produce two very different types of unconsciousness, but they follow very similar patterns and how they are produced. And if you look at them on what's known as a spectrograph, there's different bands of activity that are footprints for the different drug that you use, but there's also this really common pattern across every type of drug. And so essentially, we just kind of take a big hammer and hit the head and say, nope, don't think for a little bit.
0: What are the major consequences of using this big hammer or this nonspecific approach to induce anesthesia?
2: So. Right now, one of the big debates within anesthesia is there's something known as postoperative cognitive dysfunction. And essentially, when you come out of anesthesia, you're really groggy. And like a lot of people think of it as like, oh, you know, it's just after anesthesia. They're just a little loopy. They still have drugs in them. And it turns out that especially as you get older in elderly patients, that this can actually lead to lasting deficits. And they're oftentimes what we would consider subclinical. But we do see declines on cognitive functioning scores following anesthesia for people, particularly older people. And it's not always a guarantee that you're going to get back up after you've come out of it. And you can have these long-lasting effects of anesthesia that we don't think about. And basically, we're just turning your whole brain off. A little bit of an oversimplification, but that's sort of what we're doing rather than Mm -hmm. actually looking at specific networks. And so my goal is to make more targeted approaches to anesthesia that will hopefully have less impact. So one of the really big differences is that propofol, etomidate, these GABAergic, right? You're going to have a lot of the loopiness, the postoperative cognitive dysfunction stuff like that. With ketamine, which is a great drug, is a really fantastic anesthetic and has a lot of benefits to it, but it is also Ketamine. I think a lot of people probably know that this is a street drug and it has dissociative effects. And for some people, these dissociative effects can be really jarring and really negative. For a lot of people, ketamine is great. But for some people, it can lead to psychosis and that's really unpleasant. And so you want to avoid that. And so if we can find more clean ways, we frequently call in the anesthetic pharmacology world, we call these drugs promiscuous. They have a lot of targets. They basically just go everywhere and they're really dirty. And so my goal is to have a better understanding of these networks and make more targeted approaches to these networks, looking at the specific channels, these specific doors, and if there are differences within one network versus another.
1: In terms of having excitatory and inhibitory balance, are drugs that are used for local anesthesia cleaner than the more general anesthetics?
2: In a certain way, yes. They are definitely more cleaner because they tend to have really targeted mechanisms. So they have very clean, single mechanisms. I would say probably the classic local anesthetic is going to be the canes. So benzocaine, lidocaine, cocaine, again, great anesthetic, but also has other effects. But in the way that they work as anesthetics, local anesthetics, is that the doors that are really important for propagating that signal down the hallway, down that axon hallway, are what are known as sodium channels. And they are essentially necessary to actually send information up. And the way that local anesthetics work is they just block them. And so if you completely block them, you just can't get any signal up. And so that's sort of why, if you think about like getting Novocaine at the dentist, you can do whatever you want and you can't feel anything, right? Because you can't get any signal up. And there's also regional anesthesia, so things like epidurals. And they work very similarly, where basically you're just delivering the drug that will stop any signal from coming up whatsoever. And so it's similar to the sort of general anesthesia, which is where a lot of my interest lies, but it's a little bit more focused and targeted. And so you're not having big whole consciousness level effects. You're mm-hmm. just completely stopping anything from getting sent.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that you were interested in the thalamus. Is this region of the brain especially important for anesthesia?
2: I certainly think so, yes. and. mentioned that there are different footprints based on the different drugs but they have sort of a common pattern to them and one of those common patterns is that anesthesia basically starts in the thalamus and then propagates out and this has been shown in a number of different labs and so I think the thalamus is really important because it really is sort of the gatekeeper of sensory information and I think it's also really the gatekeeper of consciousness and the way that the thalamus basically controls all of what's happening in the higher order processes and how much information is getting up there and really sort of controlling how we interact with and perceive the world. I think it's really important, and I think that makes it a great target for finding more clean approaches to anesthesia. I think we're still a long ways off, but my hope is that As we begin to better understand how these networks come together and how they integrate and how they all sum up to the complex wonderfulness that is consciousness, then I think we get closer to making it a better way to control consciousness in a hopefully healing manner, particularly within regards to anesthesia.
0: Being that the Thalamus is sort of this orchestrator for consciousness and sensory attention, and it's connected to higher cognition, how do you focus your research and experiments to only target and study the role of the thalamus and not the other parts of the brain?
2: So in my research now, the way I target the thalamus is I take out the thalamus and I specifically look at neurons in there. While we have within the brain sort of a very small number of neurotransmitters that are really pretty important, I think sort of the classics are GABA, glutamate, dopamine, serotonin, which I think everyone's probably heard to some extent. And we think of them as having general roles. The way that they have these multifaceted roles though is by having different receptors and different channels or the doors. And so my interest is really trying to get specific interactions and specific doors as a way to probe these networks because what we know is that Even though there's GABA throughout the brain, the way that GABA functions is different in different parts of the brain. And that's true of pretty much all of them. And the way that it functions differently is by these really specific isoforms or different subtypes of these receptors and these channels. And we know that if we have enough information with some bioinformatics and qualitative structure analysis relationships for pharmacology, that we can target these different isoforms really specifically, ideally, hopefully. And so that's sort of my goal, is to try and understand how this network integrates, what the important doors or channels are, and then target those specifically.
0: Okay, great.
1: I think that's all of our questions for today. Thank you so much for your time. It was a really, really great conversation. We learned a lot. And we look forward to finding out how your research
2: develops and your applications in anesthesiology. Thank you so much. It was so much fun being here.